Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sangang namasami. Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma-farers, O oh, children of the Noble Ones. Somewhere I read, heard it said that there are four ways that our practice unfolds as we walk this path. It said that it can be slow and easy, it can be slow and difficult, if it can be quick and easy, or it can be quick and difficult. And if I were to, to poll the room, take a survey here, uh, a fair number of us would put ourselves into the slow and difficult category. <laughs> I mean, I probably I would. <laughs> Although we don't know how what scale is being used here. <laughs> you know, so maybe on the scale of multiple lifetimes, we're all in the quick and easy and slow and difficult is really bad. <laughs> no. And as a caution, self-assessment in terms of our meditation practice is always a bad idea. Highly discourage it, especially when we're on retreat. And if you do any of it, do it in like, 10 to 15 year increments. Uh, give plenty of time in there. But no matter what we might feel in, in this regard, uh, we can all safely say that our compass heading is set and we're moving in the direction of uh, ease, peace, and freedom. And there are these words that one of us may have already shared, but I want to bring them into the hall again tonight may be familiar to you from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, something he said once that I think is a very um, beautiful and worthwhile reflection. <clears throat> Liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. Now, this is good news because we have all started and we are all continuing and even better, we can start again at any point and continue then. So this is a, uh, a highly optimistic way of looking at this because we have met these requisites and I think it is good to reflect in this way. It's not that we would become complacent. There is uh, more practice required. And uh, he did say persistent practice. So effort is, if applied skillfully, definitely part of the, the plan here. <clears throat> I think in, in various ways, uh, my colleagues and I on the teaching team have have brought in this image of of planting seeds as a, a way of illustrating what we're doing in our meditation. I know I have used this this image. We're planting seeds, and and our job job is to plant them, not to make them sprout. And we plant uh, the seeds of understanding, of goodwill. We plant the seeds of love of connection and of freedom. And we do this by forming powerful intentions in the mind. Every time there's a moment of mindfulness, it's another seed being planted. The seeds of awakening, the seeds of freedom. 
and all the intentions that are formed in the mind, the intention to be mindful, the intention to cultivate wisdom, to bring love forward into the world through our own mind and heart. These intentions are powerful. They extend out into the world in all kinds of ways. And, and just as a, a seed has incredible potential, one seed can produce a huge tree that bears many, many thousands of seeds and fruits. So too, the power of intention in the mind. You know, a seed can drop into a crack in a rock and over time split that huge boulder in two. We don't know when the seeds we are planting will, will flower forth. It's not necessarily going to happen on our timetable. I want to read some passages uh, that I've put together from a book called Lab Girl by Hope Jaron, a research uh, botanist or biologist. A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years with no problem. What exactly each seed is waiting for is known only to that seed. A seed is alive while it waits. Every acorn on the ground is just as alive as the 300-year-old oak tree that towers above it. When you go out into the forest, you probably tend to look up at the plants that have grown much taller than you ever could. You probably don't look down, where just beneath your single footprint sit hundreds of seeds, each one alive and waiting. A coconut is a seed that's as big as your head. It can float from the coast of Africa across the entire Atlantic Ocean and then take root and grow on a Caribbean island. In contrast, orchid seeds are tiny. One million of them put together add up to about the weight of a single paperclip. After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed, Nelumbo nucifera, and coddled the embryo into growth, they kept the empty husk. When they radiocarbon dated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. This tiny seed had stubbornly kept up the hope of its own future while entire human civilizations rose and fell. And then one day this little plant's yearning finally burst forth within a laboratory. I wonder where it is right now. Each beginning is the end of a waiting. We are each given exactly one chance to be. Each of us is both impossible and inevitable. Every, every replete tree was first a seed that waited. So maybe that's what we're doing here, is learning how to wait. We can spend a lot of time and energy getting caught in assessing our practice, looking for sides of, of progress. Question, am I getting it? Everyone else is getting it. What if they get it all? There's none left for me. <laughs> Whatever it is. And mostly we don't see what's happening because we're looking for evidence of progress in a limited way and we're seeing it through the veils of our ideas about how things should look and feel. We don't know we're seeing in that way. You know, we have this word that you've heard us say periodically, Nibbana. It's the Pali version of the word Nirvana in Sanskrit. And most of us, if we have any way of relating to that at all, see it as something far away, high, remote, maybe beyond anything we might think to aspire to, realizing, or 
You know, there's maybe some sense of some vague, undefined, unknowable goal that no one seems to be willing to really talk about directly. something we're supposed to be able to get if we work hard enough, like some kind of reward, you know, if we spend enough time in meditation or come to enough retreats. And then there are the limitations of language that compound this, you know, because it's so difficult to attempt to speak about that which is on an essential level impossible to define in everyday language. And, and so often the best that we find is ways that we point at it. People seem to point at it either by saying what it isn't, it's not that, it's not that. Or by alluding to certain qualities or characteristics, often with vague poetic kinds of languages. There's a text called The Questions of King Melinda, where the King Melinda is asking these dialogues with a monk named Nagasena. <clears throat> Dhamma conversations, you could say, questions and responses. In that one place Nagasena is responding to a question and he says, just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, is endless. And in the, the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha is speaking to a, a Brahman named Kappa. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. And to my ears, there's such beauty in that, this image of an island which you can't go beyond, a place of non-attachment, non-possession, something that does not age, neither comes into existence or passes out of existence. And we may find these images beautiful and they may inspire and energize our practice in ways. But they can lead us also to relating to this sense of Nibbana as something out there somewhere, something we clearly don't have now, but might get someday, even though we don't really know what it might be you know, some place or state, a beautiful island somewhere. But these kinds of, of uh, poetic descriptions or images can also lead us to looking in the wrong direction. And if we're looking in the wrong direction, we're not likely to find what we're seeking. And so then we, we see Freedom, awakening, the realization of Nibbana, some far-off possibilities, some attainment in a future state of grace, maybe available only to certain special kinds of beings. And we look for it somewhere outside ourselves, a beautiful island somewhere over there. 
somewhere beyond our present moment experience. It can't be where I'm hanging out now doesn't feel like a beautiful island. It's just the, my, my stuff arising and passing. <laughs> this unpleasant sensation, this weird mind state. That can't be where to look. We look outside at this moment-to-moment experience and, and we don't see that what we're looking for is, is right here and that this body, this mind, is the very vehicle that will lead us to what we seek, it will lead us home. These are some words from a, an enlightened uh, nun in the Thai forest tradition named Mei Chi Kao. Speaks to this in, in her own way very beautifully. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions. Anger, greed, and delusion. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. A few years ago I was given a book. Uh, It was a biography of a of a monk that I met in Thailand, Ajahn Panyawado. I met him uh, oh, 20 years ago now. He's, he passed away some time, uh, some number of years ago, maybe 10. <clears throat> he um, was a student of a very famous teacher named Ajahn Mahabua, and he ordained uh, the year I was born, 1955 a very senior uh, Western monk, one of the, uh, at least in, in, these mo- in modern times, one of the first Westerners to ordain and make a life in Thailand as a monk. He was very generous with his time when I was staying at a, a wat in Thailand, and he came for a week, and we could just go and... Uh, meet with him in the evenings and talk Dhamma and ask questions. And in the book, there's one passage I'd like to share with you. He said, I'd say that Nibbana is already there in everybody, and everybody knows it, but they don't recognize it. Intuitively, we know that there is something better than this world, but we don't know what it is. So we search for it, and because we have an array of senses to work with, We tend to focus out in the direction of the senses, looking there for true happiness. Of course, that's searching in the wrong direction. It's looking out someplace other than where we are right now. We don't see any other way to be looking because our our conditioning is so strong in this regard. And, and then we get disappointed and frustrated because we don't seem to be finding what we're seeking. We're looking in the wrong direction. That's the only problem. And when we don't seem to be finding what we're looking for, we either blame ourselves or blame the world or both. Either we're doing it wrong or our conditions are wrong, wrong teachers, wrong mind, <laughs> wrong body. <laughs> but we're not to blame and the world isn't to blame. The world is just unfolding lawfully. It's just doing its thing. It's just nature. And we're just an aspect of nature too. just that we're 
we're turning towards and grasping onto worldly conditions and, and transient experiences in the futile hope that they are going to lead us to freedom. And they can, actually, if we relate to them in the right way, because this body, this mind, right now, that is our vehicle for understanding nothing else. Nature here, internally, externally. Because all we're doing is exploring nature here. There's nothing to get. There's nowhere to go. There's a, a Dhamma book that I, I've, always, I've loved since I, I first uh, came across it a long time ago now, probably one of the first Dhamma books I, I read by a, uh, another famous teacher from Thailand whose f- photograph is actually down in the gratitude hut, Ajahn Buddha Dasa. He was, a, he was kind of a radical even within... In some well, in Buddhist countries, maybe it's not seen as radical, but he had a he had his own way of teaching and of putting things. The book is called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. It's a small book, and at one point in there, he summarizes the entirety of the Buddha's teachings. Which, if you've had a look, it's a lot, volume after volume. He had a long career and apparently gave a lot of teachings. And he summed it all up in four words. Sabbe dhamma nalang abhini vesaya. So my understanding is that sabbe is translated as all. Sabbe sata, all beings. Sabbe all. Dhamma has different meanings, but in this case we could say it means things. Nalang seems to mean something like should not, and abhini vesaya, uh, be clung to, nothing, whatever, should be clung, clung to, all things not to be clung to. And then Buddha Dasa in the book, he, he emphasized the power of this by saying that anyone who has heard this teaching has heard all of the teachings. Anyone who has put it into practice has practiced the entirety of the teachings. Anyone who has realized the fruits of practicing it has realized all possible fruits of the practice. Nothing, whatever, should be clung to. Now this seems to be his way of translating and summarizing uh, a sutta in, in one of the uh, collections in the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, Andrea, I think, or one of, one of us referred to it. I think it was Andrea. Um, and there in, in, in Bhikkhu Bodhi, he has a different translation of those words, um, which I believe Andrea shared. Nothing is worth adhering to. In the sutta, uh, the king of the devas, whose name is Sakka, has come down um, and appeared before the Buddha and asks a question, Venerable Sir, how in brief is a practitioner liberated through the destruction of clinging? I think, Andrea, uh, someone shared this teaching, but I'm bringing it back this evening. And the Buddha says, Here, ruler of gods, a practitioner has heard that nothing is worth adhering to. When one has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, one directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, one fully understands everything. So it does seem like the Buddha is saying, this is it. This is how one is liberated through the release of clinging. And I think Andrea spoke about the the word adhering, you know, adhesion, like glue. 
we get glued to things. And the experience of clinging has this feeling of, of being glued or stuck to experience. And we can get glued to our views, our ideas, to certain experiences. We can get glued to pretty much anything <laughs> that arises. So we can see our practice in this regard as the process of getting unglued, unstuck. Find the solvent that dissolves the glue. We've referred to and shared um, different teachings from the Satipatthana Sutta, a discourse on the establishments of mindfulness. And we've referred to this refrain that happens, occurs, uh, I believe, 13 times in that uh, sutta. And it's, it's found at the end of each section of instructions and kind of summarizes how we, how we should approach practice. And, and so it uh, goes like this. In this way, in regard to the body, to feelings, to the mind, to dhammas, the four establishments, in this way, one abides contemplating them internally, or one abides contemplating them externally, or one abides contemplating them both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in these things, one in the nature of passing away in them, or the nature of both arising and passing away, or mindfulness that there is a body that there are feelings, that there is mind, that there are dhammas. Mindfulness, that there are these things is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's the last line that refrain, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So again, this sense of not clinging, and the, the, the feeling here is that the, through the process of mindfully contemplating our experience, in this way that it's described in terms of the establishments of mindfulness, body, feelings, etc., that through this contemplation in these different ways, there's this um, realization of a kind of independence that is characterized by non-clinging to anything in the world, not clinging to anything. So an echo there of this uh, earlier summary by Ajahn Buddha Dasa, nothing whatever is to be clung to or nothing is worth adhering to. <laughs> Don't get glued to it. And so this interesting use of the word independence, I actually love that. It's not a kind of independence that's insular or disconnected or separated from the world or from life or from others. It's not that kind of independence. It's, we could say this abiding independently, this independent abiding points to a life where our well-being, our basic okayness, our peace of mind in the deepest sense of that is independent of uh, changing conditions that come in, in the world, in our lives. It's not blown about by the winds of change. So it's that kind of a, an independence. And so that independence is there, but we live in the world fully and joyfully but we don't ask the world of changing conditions to provide something which it is incapable of ever providing, a source of lasting contentment, a source of peace. 
We don't grasp on to changing conditions. We don't look out there. We find it somewhere else. And when I was first uh, uh, contemplating and thinking about reading this teaching and this refrain and looking at those words, I thought, okay, the rest of it is you look at it this way, this way, but this is like a description of the end of the path. That's how I saw it. Uh, one abides independent, not clinging. This is uh, the realization, the description of rea- the realization of the Buddha. And in some ways that makes sense. And I think we can see it that way. That can be useful. But but we can also see it as an, as an instruction because everything else in this teaching is an instruction. Let's make that an instruction too. I can just practice it. Those of you who've uh, been around Joseph Goldstein when he's teaching, he, he used to come here a lot. I know some of you have spent time on retreat where he's been teaching. He has he likes to say um, this: "It does not matter to what you do not cling." Kind of a funny sentence, but doesn't matter what you don't cling to. And I'm not sure if he said this or if I, this is my elaboration, but it also doesn't matter when you don't cling. You don't have to wait. You know, don't wait. I'll, I'll not cling some, some time. Just do it now. Let's try it. Let's just sit here quietly and practice non-clinging. All right, good job. (laughs) I mean, we should, we can notice times when there is not clinging in the mind. It's not always there, is it? Maybe that was your experience just now. Just simply being here sitting quietly, nothing is grasped at or clung to. It's good to notice that. Notice it. You'll probably see lots of moments like that if you just pay attention. It's like notice moments of mindfulness. There's a ton of them. Are you mindful right now? Yes. You might not have been until I asked that question, (laughs) assuming my voice woke you up if you've fallen asleep. And that's okay. You have my permission to fall asleep any time in one of my talks. (laughs) Something goes in there anyway, I think. But we can also kind of tune the way we approach our meditation in ways that directly support this sense of non-clinging, non-grasping, non-adhering. Well, I'll mention a few possibilities. I can come up with many of your own, perhaps. But there's one simple way that we can pull right out of that refrain that I just read a little bit ago from the Satipatthana Sutta, I was talked about this morning where we're instructed to contemplate experience in terms of its nature to arise, its nature to pass away, or both its nature to arise and to pass away. So in essence, we're contemplating in terms of the fact that it is impermanent. It's anicca, not permanent. Ah means not nicha, permanent, anicca. 
And there are many times that the Buddha placed, emphasized the, the power and the importance of perceiving impermanence. And in many ways, the whole path does kind of flow from an ever-deepening, direct understanding of this reality, this truth. These are the words of the Buddha. Fruitful as is the act of giving, yet it is still more fruitful to go with a confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to undertake the five precepts of virtue. And fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain loving kindness in one's being for only as long as the time it takes to milk a cow. And fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain the perception of impermanence for only as long as the snapping of a finger. Okay, that sounds fruitful. (laughs) Better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall than to live for 100 years and not perceive their rise and fall. One day. Better than 100 years. One day perceiving the arising and passing of things. And in various places in the texts, there's the description of a moment of awakening. Someone is listening to the Dhamma and they have a realization there. And it's, it's described in this way. The stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. The stainless eye of the Dhamma. Just seeing, oh, not having finally persuaded oneself that it's true. (laughs) The deep, direct seeing of it. You know, we hear the words, all things are impermanent, or anicca, so much, and we can easily get a develop a kind of superficial relationship with this, you know. Meditation teachers are always going on and on about it, in which they talk about something else. And it it can become a kind of philosophical stance that we adopt or or something to say, you know, when you hang around meditation centers or maybe maybe when you go home and say, Yeah, everything's impermanent, you know. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But as you may have actually noticed, (laughs) everything in this body, this mind, internally, everything in the world around us is in a state of constant flux. And we see it over and over. And as Winnie was describing this morning, sometimes we attuned to that on a very subtle level and we see it's arising and passing very, very quickly, more quickly than our everyday eye can possibly perceive. But sometimes in meditation we touch into uh, the movement of change on that level. But a lot of the time we get lost in all of the details of what's arising and passing, and we get enthralled by the world of the sense contacts and all we think and feel about it and what it means, especially what it means about me. And we can really lose sight of this changing, fleeting aspect, this fleeting world. And, you know, there's so many things, the way the changes over the course of the day as the earth first bows down towards the sun and then bows away from it at 
and all the changes through the day and the weather was really cold this morning. It got warm, it's cooling off again and the seasonal changes over the course of the year. The body changing as we grow older, age. This inevitable movement of anything that takes birth towards aging and death. We see change on that macro kind of level and we see change very finally within the sensations of the body and the shifting dance of the elements as they arise and pass. And one arises and falls away and another one comes immediately after. And hardness and softness and warmth and coolness and pressure and tension and all of these things. And sometimes the concept of body and, and even the sense of the form of it or its shape and boundaries, that dissolves and all there is is this vibration of change. We perceive body in this very fine sense of connecting to it, the flow of sensations there. Or maybe we see change in terms of the way a whole universe is created in the mind, fabricated there, and we inhabit it for a while. Some whole story or drama, and then it just goes away. Where was it? Where is it? It's gone. It seems so real. But sometimes we see thoughts as these wisping pulses of energy in the mind fleeting, so insubstantial, nothing to them, no substance whatsoever. They pass away even as we become aware of them. They're already disappearing. This is from a book called Pure and Simple by a, a teacher in uh, Thailand, uh, no longer alive, named Upasaka Ki. Nanayon. She said, if you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, and passing away, like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. But we lose sight of this. And really, there's just arising and passing she says, arising, remaining. Well, the remaining, that's not very, where does that, <laughs> in that, where does the remaining part, that's pretty, pretty brief. We get caught up in it. We often find that we're identified with it, or we've latched, she uses the term, latching onto it. And this does lead us to feel that there's, there's got to be a lot of issues at stake. Because look at all this liking and not liking, all this wanting and not wanting. There's got to be something I've got to do about it all. There's a lot of issues there. Or so it seems. There's got to be stuff. I've got to fix this. I've got to get this under control. <laughs> it's just not the way I want it to be. It's not the way it should be. <laughs> there just seem to be so many issues, don't there, sometimes? <laughs> but if we just step back and relax into the flow, it's like softening our gaze by the side of a stream. We can find that this quality of an independent abiding, we can taste the possibility of that. We can look at the present moment simply as it arises and passes and just let it go, let it be. 
A few more words from Upasaka Ki Nanayan. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future has not yet come. Look simply at the present, arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, that's when you gain release. Another way we can kind of tune our meditation, sort of tuning towards this possibility of an independent abiding right in the moment, maybe not the final big independent abiding, (laughs) but we can also, it's like we rest our attention back more into the quality within the quality of awareness itself. We can let mindfulness take awareness as its object in us, in essence. A number of years ago, I was uh, taking part in a retreat with um, a teacher that uh, we've referred to, I think especially Andrea has referred to, Sayada Utejaniya. Some of you probably practiced with him or heard his teachings. And we were just sitting in, it was at uh, the Insight Meditation Society. We were in the hall and Sayadaw would come and, and sit with us. And he doesn't give Dhamma talks, um, but somehow he was persuaded, <laughs> I think by Carol Wilson and some others, that he should go sit with us and say something <laughs> for us, something because often he doesn't even do that. And at one point, so he would just sit there and then something would come out of his Uh, some reflection would just arise and he'd share with us. And at one point he said, awareness is your true home. You should stay home where you belong. (laughs) And it came out very light and, and sort of almost whimsical in that way. But, but the way it landed with me in the moment, right in the moment, it was the sense, Oh, I'll just stay here. I don't have to pick anything up. I don't have to latch on to it. I can just stay here. And and this sense of, oh, I don't have to pick it up can kind of soften, maybe even remove a lot of the compulsion we feel to get involved in trying to control or fix the arising and passing flow of experience, you know. And we may find there are moments when we don't latch on to anything. We can just stay home and we don't have to pick any of it up. And and there's a sense of this independent abiding there in moments. We just see, oh, it's, it's just this flow of objects, contact and knowing objects are rising and passing away. We don't have to latch on to any of them. They're just doing they're just doing their thing. It's just nature flowing. It's like water flowing by. Another practice that if we do it carefully can be very very informative and powerful is uh, the practice of doing nothing, not doing, really hard to do. (laughs) So often our sincere efforts can lead us in the direction of trying to make something happen leaning on the moment in some way, trying to get something or see something, trying to have an insight. I gotta get an insight. I gotta see impermanence. I gotta get it out of there. I'm gonna get that impermanence to show up. I'm gonna wait to get things all impermanent and then I'm gonna realize it. (laughs) Pull it out of there. 
But if we just sit and we shift from, as I sometimes say in meditation, shift from a hu- being a, a human doing to a human being, because often we're human doings, let go of our agendas, let go of something, anything that feels like something we're practicing or working on, stop working on things. It's too much most of the time. Let's just sit here for a minute and let's just not do anything. That doesn't mean repressing something or trying to push something away, and it doesn't mean I'm you know making an effort to space out. It just means don't do anything. So what do we notice? You can keep not doing anything while I talk. You don't have to look at me or change anything. Everything still goes on, (laughs) nothing stops. Mindfulness is there or not there, it comes and goes. Sensations, sounds, everything happens by itself. What's the difference between that and what we call meditating? Interesting to explore that. Because so often a lot of our struggles in meditation arise out of our sincere efforts that lead us to trying to make something happen, trying to get something. So these kinds of, um, they're not huge shifts, but they're kind of tuning the practice in a particular way can incline towards this sense of release and resting in the moment. We just let things arise and cease according to their nature. They're going to do it anyway. Why don't we just let them do it? We don't have to get so worked up about it or start latching onto it and working on it. Gonna work this baby. And we begin to, over time, we increase our trust in the possibility, you could say, in the reality of non clinging, non attachment, non identification, not clinging to anything in the world. We say, oh, that's a better plan. That's more peaceful and points us in the direction of a truly independent abiding where the mind and heart are not in contention with reality but are in harmony with it, with nature. And and there are times, there are moments when the mind and the heart open to, rest in a kind of place of deep, profound kind of balance. And there's this sense of a kind of marvelous silence or stillness, maybe stillness, a better word. A stillness that's there beneath the flow of all these arisings and passings, this ceaseless motion that characterizes life. These are some more words by uh, Mei Chi Kao that point to this stillness that we taste in moments. In a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, 
we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. We may not use this kind of language, the original mind. Certain traditions view things in that way. They run the experiment that way. But we get the sense of this possibility of the stillness there where the heart is still at rest and the, the grasping. It's like if you've been squeezing your hands into fists and you stop squeezing, you don't have to do anything else. They'll unbind and release by themselves if you give it a little time. So there's this sense of a of a kind of stillness that's there, that arises out of this deep intimacy with life. And it's not bound up with clinging or identification. We don't have to try to get it and hold on to it. And it's not separate from the motion and vibrant dance of life. It's It's not separate, but it's kind of unaffected by that. It's like the stillness of the ocean beneath the waves. There can be a big storm, but underneath that, it's always still. And that stillness is always there. It's here right now with us in the hall. here no matter the conditions, the circumstances. So I'll leave you with uh, part of a poem. This is from Burnt Norton by T.S. Eliot. And I know some of you have heard this. It's a favorite of people like me and meditation teachers, but it's so beautiful. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense a light still and moving.
May our practice be dedicated to the happiness, the welfare, and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for coming and joining uh, the Sangha this evening, for listening and uh, your kind attention. We have time for that good old walking meditation. And uh, for those who would like to, we'll do some chanting at 9 p.m. We'll chant the uh, Metta Sutta tonight. So please be welcome for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.